This podcast is a ministry of Crossroads Community Church in Hatfield, Pennsylvania. And now, the message. Christmas really is uh, easy to enjoy when you try to think about it from the perspective of children, isn't it? I heard about a couple of brothers. Uh, They got to spend the weekend with their grandparents, and uh, so the youngest one was saying his prayers, and uh, it's kind of strange. When he was praying, he's shouting at the top of his lungs, I pray for a new bicycle, God, and I pray for a new Nintendo, and I pray for a new... And his older brother finally stopped, and he goes, God isn't deaf. But why are you yelling? God's not deaf. And he says, I know, but Grandma is. <laughs> so you've got all of those dynamics. I heard about the three men who died right close to Christmas, and they were standing in front of Peter at the pearly gates. And Peter said, well, you know, in light of the festive holidays, he says, uh, let's do this. How about if you guys each show me something that reminds us, that symbolizes Christmas. And if you can do that, then I'll let you in. Oh, they're panicked. And the one guy, he digs around in his pockets, finally pulls out a lighter, and he holds it up, and he goes, these are candles. And Peter says, okay. Next guy's digging through his pockets, pulls out his keys, and he jingles them, and he goes, "Uh, bells. Uh, That's tough, but okay, Peter says, you're in. The third guy's just digging around, and finally, at the last minute, he pulls out a pair of women's reading glasses. Peter says, excuse me? He says, they're carols. <laughs> yeah, anyway. So uh, we have been in the middle of a series. We're going to wrap up the series today. And uh, whether you've noticed it or not, we've been focusing on some of the women of Christmas. And we've been highlighting this idea that Christmas is something that unfolded. It didn't happen once and done. It had been coming. It it happened in the stories that we're going to tell. And there's a part that even continues on. It's it's something that is unfolding. So Pastor Jim, a couple weeks ago, took us to Elizabeth, and, and we saw how she was able to find personal fulfillment by being a part of this big plan that God was putting together. And Pastor Nick, last week, focused on Mary, a young teen girl who suddenly finds herself pregnant. And she is stuck with this challenge of suggesting that it was the Holy Spirit. And we we can just imagine the difficulty. And in the midst of all that, rather than rejecting that she was willing to accept all the mess that came with that because she understood that God was in the process of redeeming mankind. Well, today we're going to look at some other women, but um, I wanted to ask you first before we get started, how are you doing on your gifts? Now, some of you, you smug ones, you, you're, you've got it all, you're set, you are ready to go. And others of you are, are sitting there now very uncomfortable, thinking through the people, the things, and, a, uh, 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 and you feel some pressure. If you're, some of us don't plan as well as others, right? So maybe uh, 
maybe you're feeling some of that pressure. Have you ever noticed how different people are when it comes to gifts? Um, there are always uh, those people who are so thoughtful and, and get you what you wanted. Then there are other people who get you what they want. <laughs> We've got a few of those in our family. Like, what, why? You're like, I just loved it. <laughs> okay, well, uh, there, are, there are those who, who you can tell they bought the first thing they saw in the mall, right? It's just like, there, you're done. How's that? I've never even seen one. I know, I thought it would be a whole new thing for you. I remember somebody gave me something. They said, yeah, I just thought, I, I thought you could start a collection. <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh, and, then, and then there are those people who give you gifts. I happen to be married to one, one of these people who works on something, has actually been thinking of you and preparing. Some of you are like that. I hate you. No. No, no, not actually. I mean, it's, it's wonderful, isn't it? Like, what's so nice about gifts that have been made, and especially the ones that take time, is it's, it's one thing to say to somebody, oh, I've been thinking about you. But it's those people that produce those kinds of gifts, they have proof. They can prove that they're thinking of you. And actually, that's what it does even later. When you see that gift, you think, boy, he was working on that for months. She was working on that for months. Proof that you've been thought about. Well, today I want to look at a couple of gifts that are a part of the Christmas story. And they're gifts that somebody had been thinking about for a long time. But they're not the wise men gifts. Okay, No Frankenstein jokes. Instead, I want to look at some of the women that Matthew mentions in, his, in the beginning of his birth narrative in Matthew chapter 1. And so, if you have a Bible, I'm going to encourage you to open it to Matthew chapter 1. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, there's a blue hardcover copy somewhere near you. And, uh, or we're going to project the, the scriptures up front and, and you can just follow along if you'd like. So... Matthew starts his narrative like this. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, I know this might come as a surprise to some of you, but I actually work hard. I think about introductions to messages. I actually try to come up with something that's kind of interesting. And I, I have to be honest, I never once ever considered opening a sermon with a genealogy. So Matthew's already way ahead of me here. And, and there's a reason why I didn't think of it. Because you and I both probably share a genealogy bias. They're boring. Okay? They're boring. In, unless, unless it's ancestry and it's something exciting. And you're so, but for the most part, we think of genealogies as boring. Hearing about somebody else is just rattled off. The epitome of boring. Now, it's important for us to note that Jewish readers, and that was Matthew's audience when he wrote this account, Jewish readers, not only would they have not found a genealogy boring, they would have been expecting it. They would have found it intriguing. Because in a, in a, strange, in a way that's hard for us to understand, genealogies were sort of proof 
for them. Proof, proof of their history, proof of their ancestry, proof of the roots that go back. And that was important to them. Increasingly in our culture now, some of us are catching on to that. It is kind of neat to know who your people were and where they come from. You know, what does your tribe do? How many times have I heard about it? I mean, I, as I explore my family and I find out they were all like hunters and outdoorsmen and be like, wow. And my wife would go through and there's all these crafts people and textiles people like, wow, right? So it's kind of nice. It strengthens our sense of identity. The Jews would have, expecting, would have been expecting. Uh, it would have been a powerful part of the opening of this. Now, it's interesting when you look at the gospel that Matthew wrote, one of his favorite sayings, he says it over and over again in the first two chapters. He says, this was done in order to fulfill what was written. And he says it over and over again. It's really obvious that he is trying to help his Jewish audience understand that the things that happened around Jesus' birth were all things that were connected to, what, to something that God had started generations before. He wanted them to, to, to know that this was a part of a bigger plan. And what's nice about a genealogy is these are real people, real people who lived in a real place. This isn't just a novel. It's not fiction. It's not a story. And so that helps us a little bit. It, it kind of gets us grounded. Now, for those of you that are students of the scriptures, you might notice that Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy don't match. Whoa. And there's been a lot of writing about why, and I think actually the, the reason is fairly simple. And so I'm hoping we can skip that today and just simply you'll take my word for it, that there's a reason why Matthew recorded the genealogy in the way he did. By the way, it's not inaccurate. What he lists are people who were descendants of people, and that was true. He wasn't necessarily listing every single name. And we're going to see why when we finish up this morning. Now, luckily for us, Matthew does something in his genealogy that's unexpected, since our theme is the women of Christmas. He includes women in this genealogy. It's hard for us to completely get our minds around a culture. We're working so hard at evening the playing field. This was a culture where if you were writing a genealogy, you did it to give whatever the reason you were writing, to give it some, some substance, to give it some proof. And adding a woman to the list would not do that to any list. I don't endorse that attitude. That was just the culture. It's pretty shocking that he included the names of women in this list. And we're going to try to figure out why why he included these women in his genealogy. But first, why don't we take a really quick look at some of the women that he listed. The next verse. He says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Oops. Now, if you don't know anything about the scriptures, if you're not a believer in Jesus yet, you're just interested, do not even look at the story of Tamar. <laughs> Ignore it. Just skip it for a while. 
I'm going to tell you, it's one of the most sordid stories that is found in the entire Bible. The shortest story is that basically this woman, Tamar, she was married, her husband died, her next husband died. And you have to understand, in a culture, the, the, only, the only future, the only 501c3, the only retirement plan that you had was your children. They were going to take care of you. Without a son, you couldn't even conduct business legally. So you, the children were to women, they were everything to them. And here this woman had buried two husbands and still had no heirs. Now, the Old Testament law gave ways for a woman to still get relief. We find it a little bit offensive, right? When the law would say, well, okay, then your brother-in-law's got to sleep with you. Excuse me, it's just so counter. But, but when you think about this is securing the woman's entire future, okay, I'm not going to lie to you, it's still really weird, right? But suffice it to say that the law said that then one of these relatives of hers would have to give her a child. And uh, the, the story is basically that the, the men in her life that were supposed to do this for her failed. Even her father-in-law, ultimately it came to him that he was supposed to get her pregnant, and he wouldn't for whatever reason. Tamar actually was obeying the law. When finally she dressed up, she disguised herself as a prostitute, and she hung out the, at the gates, and dressed as a prostitute, she tricked her own father-in-law into giving her a child. Disgusting. And it gets worse, but we'll save that for another message. Never. <laughs> I just want you to notice, Tamar could have gone one out and gotten pregnant by anybody, she was trying to obey the law and make sure this stayed in the family. She had to trick her father-in-law into doing what he was supposed to do according to the law. But still, we find it pretty weird, pretty shocking. We can't relate. And yet, she is listed in this genealogy of Jesus. Really strange choice. There were other people other siblings. There are other people who could have been listed. Matthew chose her. Pretty, pretty shocking. Well, let's read on. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Abinadab. Abinadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Solomon. Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boy, we are just knocking him out of the park. <laughs> Now, if I say to you, if we're talking about disciples, and if I say the, the name Thomas, you say, of course. Thomas never got away from the doubting, just like Rahab never got away from the harlot. You hear the name Rahab, the harlot. What's really shocking is that even in the New Testament, when she's, she's mentioned in Hebrews and she's mentioned in James, and even there, it mentions this connection. Well, if you don't know the story of Rahab, it's pretty simple. You see, Tamar, by the way, I should back up. Tamar was not a Jew. She was a Canaanite woman. Okay, she, she wasn't even part of God's people. She married in. She's a Canaanite woman. Rahab, too, was a Canaanite woman living in the town of Jericho. Well, you know what happened to Jericho. Town after town is falling. 
to the nation of Israel as they march into the promised land. Jericho knows they're next, and the whole town is panicked. And as the story goes, Rahab, this woman and her family, which, by the way, it's interesting, she negotiates to save her family. No mention of a husband, but she's got children. One of the, one of the difficulties of being a prostitute, perhaps, in that day and age. So she has children, and she has extended family, and she's, she wants to protect them. And when she sees the spies that have come from Israel, she engages them and says, I'm going to help you, and she hides them. And she enables them to escape. It's pretty interesting. This Canaanite woman, somebody from outside of the the blessings of God, she says to the spies, I have shown you kindness. The word she chooses is chesed, like devotional love. I have been faithful and loyal to you. It's the word that is used often of God's love for his people. Loyal love. The people in your family, the people that you love, that they love you no matter what. That's what it means, chesed. She says, I have shown you loyalty. All I ask is that when you guys take this city, that you show me and my family the same loyalty and love. Because your God is God. And I know what he's about to do. So in in this act and in this statement, she expresses faith. And, of course, the spies say, that's a deal. And later in the book of Joshua, we hear the instructions, level the place except go find Rahab and her family, pull her out because she was faithful to us. We're going to be faithful to her. And the scriptures tell us that she actually lived the rest of her days in Israel among God's people. She had, she had a, a come-to-God moment in her life, and it stuck for the rest of her life. But we can't escape the fact that so far in Jesus' genealogy, they've got Tamar and now Rahab. We're not done. We'll read on. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. What's a strange roundabout way to talk about her, huh? Remember her name? Bathsheba, sure. And yet, boy, doesn't even use her name. Uriah's wife. Now, in this context, it would easy, be easy to say, oh, um, she's another bad lady, the bad ladies of the Bible. Although, to be honest, you search the scriptures, there's really no record that she did much wrong. I mean, he was the king. She couldn't really refuse. Maybe, maybe it was a little bit risque to be bathing up on the, on the rooftop. I don't do it. Everybody says, thank you, Mike. Uh, but... For the most part, there's nothing that we see that she's not, she's not tapped with any sin, sort of, and yet they don't even use her name. Now, Bathsheba was actually genetically a Jew, but, well, the way this is written, we're reminded that she's married. She was married to who? Uriah. Uriah the Hittite. Yes. And so, although she was a Jew, she had married a Gentile, and... This is probably given to us this way because it's focusing on her Gentileness. 
Like she married into the family. She was about as Hittite as anybody else in the family. She was part of that family. Two Canaanites and a Hittite. People that were not allowed to even enter the promised land. And yet, not only are they in the promised land, they, they're in the lineage of Jesus himself. Hmm. And then finally, and Jacob was the father of Joseph. We're skipping down to verse 16. The husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Five women. Five women in this genealogy of Jesus. Women shouldn't be there at all, let alone these women. If you were going to, so I wish we had, I wish this was a classroom and we could just talk. You got to admit, this is an unlikely tree, family tree, don't you think? Not what you would expect. Why do you think? Why do you think Matthew included them? Well, I mean, I guess we could say, well, he's just, he tossed a few women in there just to kind of acknowledge that women were important to Jesus too. Yeah, okay. But if he wanted to add women, why didn't he add like, like heroic women? You know, there, there are women whose names would have been recognized. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah. Ah, uh, Well, that's why then. He's, he listed them because he wanted us to know that Sinners were even in his lineage. I mean, and to be honest, I, I think that's true, that there were sinners in Jesus' lineage, every one of them. The truth is that Jesus didn't just come for sinners. He came from sinners. The problem here is that you don't have to add women to this list to find sinners. You look through those lists, You've got guys who lied. That, oh, she's not my wife. She's my sister. You got liars and cheaters, and and I mean, they were just as sinful as anybody. That you could have found plenty of sinners without adding the women. I, it's hard to understand why, why he would include them. We're, we're kind of glad he did. I mean, in one sense, every one of those women. Oh, we skipped Ruth. I apologize. We skipped Ruth. If you know the story of Ruth, and did it fall out there? Is that why we missed it? Yep, we did. So a slide's missing. It was my fault. So we missed Ruth, and if, if you know the story of Ruth, again, she was, a, she was a Moabitess, a woman who didn't belong. She wasn't allowed to enter the kingdom, but she married a Jew. He dies. Now there's really no hope. Her mother-in-law is going to go back to the promised land and try to eke out a living, but she says, you and your sister both married to her sons, both of whom who died. You guys stay here. Try to make a life for yourselves. Maybe go find somebody else, get married, have a life here. And the one sister goes back. But it's Ruth who says, now I'm staying with you. In fact, she is the one who's credited with this quote. And she says, I don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where will I go? And where, will I where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. How interesting. This is a woman, a Moabitess, who was condemned by the law. But she found grace. Now, if you know the rest of the story, she follows Naomi back to the promised land. And then Boaz spots her in the field and begins to show her kindness and we don't have time to explain the relationship of a kinsman redeemer. 
But the law, the Old Testament law, made account for the fact that someone else, remember, somebody else related to you, might come in and save your family line. And it just so happened that Boaz was in that family line. And to make a long story short, he loved Ruth and married her. How interesting that she could stay in the land and know God's blessing because she was loved by a kinsman redeemer who showed her favor. So, now that I fix that, skip. We've got these five women. It's interesting that almost all of them experience some disgrace. They, they were put in situations that were really difficult. And in the midst of the disgrace, they experienced grace. So we read the story, and if nothing else, we think, you know, it's like God likes to take things that are messy and bring good out of them. He loves to bring beauty from ashes. We know it from Romans, don't we? 8.28. That he's, he's eager, he's happy, he's able to make all things work together for good. So, if, if that was the only reason they were included in this, in this list, that would be good enough for us. But I think there's something else that we need to be aware of as we go into this week of celebrating the birth of Christ. And the first thing I think is that it's, it's as though Matthew is being intentional. It's like he searched all the, the records and he looked for the names in the genealogy that would bring the greatest shock, the, the biggest, huh? Like not expected at all. It's like he looked for them to make a point that throughout the entire genealogy of Jesus, that there was this constant intertwining between the Gentile and the Jew, between the, 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 the royal and the common, between those who had standing and those who had none. It was as though it was just, consist, just constantly woven through, woven through this message that from the very beginning of the redemptive plan, God was about redeeming every kind of people, every gender, every nationality. Think of the, the most striking divide in our culture today, whatever you might say it is. The message from Jesus' line, from his family tree, is that God is interested in redeeming both sides. It's possible some Democrats are going to go to heaven. <laughs> it's possible Republicans will go. It's almost impossible that either could go. But anyway, that's, but what I'm saying is whatever the biggest divide you can think of, transgender debates and we have racial divides and we have the message from Jesus' lineage is He's coming to save all of them. David, King David himself had a Canaanite great-great-great-grandmother and a Jerichoite great-great-grandmother and a Moabite great-grandmother. And he married a Hittite. 
That's just one king. It's as though Matthew wants the church to know from the very start that the plan of salvation goes way beyond whoever you think is most deserving and most likely. Of course, then when you think about the rest of the story and angels appearing to shepherds of all people, and you know, it then it increases this idea like of all the people, we're going to talk about that Christmas Eve. We're going to have a lot of fun with that. And there's one other thing I think that we should look at. And that's found right after this section of the genealogy. Remember, at the very beginning, he said, this is the lineage, the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David and the son of Abraham, tracing back Gentile and Jew. Verse 17, he says this. Thus, there were 14 generations from Abraham to David. 14 generations from David to the exile, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Now, that's why I think Matthew's and Luke's genealogies don't quite match up. Because Matthew tells us he actually did this on purpose. He tried to count it up, not inaccurate, didn't lie, but he arranged it so that we would see something. There were 14 generations from Abraham to David. 14 generations from David and his son Solomon to the exile to Babylon. 14 generations from the return from Babylon to when Jesus came. He's trying to make a point. What he's saying is, there's been a plan all along. When you think about the history of Israel, it kind of goes like this. I want you to imagine that the first 14 years, that generation is that first arrow. You go from Abraham, who is a nobody, but he gets a promise to have a baby and build a nation and bless the whole world. And by the end of those 14 generations, what has happened? King David is here, and Israel is practically the center of the world. Just this, this, this reigning nation, things just went up, up, up. Oh, but in that next 14 generations, Solomon and his sons and their sons and everything went downhill and downhill and downhill and evil and dishonesty and injustice and it plummeted and it ended with exile. I watch the news about Syria and I shake my head and I think, how do people survive? And I realize that's exactly what Jerusalem looked like. It was flattened and burned to the ground. People were carried off or killed. And so now it plummets into, do you, do you think it felt like chaos? Hopelessness? And then God begins to rebuild again. They come out of exile and they start moving toward the arrival of the Messiah himself. You know, when you look at it this way, I think what Matthew's saying is 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. It doesn't sound chaotic, does it? It doesn't sound like, like random craziness. No, there's been a plan all along. God knows exactly what he's doing, and it's going to finish 
just the way he said. I think that's important for us today because I know what's been happening in your home. Because it happens in all of our homes around Christmas. Christmas has this way of exaggerating anything that's not right and making it twice as big. Things look larger. You're facing problems that you can't solve. And they just seem bigger than ever at Christmas. Or you're dealing with people that you just cannot control. Or you're fighting with, wrestling with expectations that, that you, nobody can meet. Christmas just seems to make that bigger. If you felt pain before, it's magnified. If you felt alienation before, it's magnified. And it seems as though no matter how good this Christmas is, it won't meet up to what is in your head or somebody else's head. So maybe this is a good message for us. This reminder that God has actually got a plan and there's no chaos at all. But for us to enjoy that, we have to stop focusing this Christmas on what's happening around us. Take your focus off of what's happening this week or what isn't happening this week or what is, who is coming this week or who isn't coming this week or what you're going to be able to do this year, what you can't do this year. Lift your focus off of that for a moment and put it on something a little more steady. And what is that? Don't look at what's happening. Look at what has happened. Think about Matthew's message through these women. You can have the huge successes. You can have plummeting failures. You can have chaos. And then when you look at God's plan, everything is right on schedule. He knows what he's doing. He's in control. Those loved ones that you're concerned about, he loves them too. The limitations that you're struggling with, he understands that and is more than able when the time is right. Whatever is looming, lift your head off, your mind, your eyes off of that for a minute and focus instead of what's happening, focus on what has happened. The Messiah was sent at just the right time. You see, God has been working on these gifts for you for generations. Carving, whittling, knitting, painting, sculpting, whatever, whatever image works for you. He's been crafting these gifts for generations. He crafted it all right up until that night that we celebrate this week when the Messiah arrives. And what we know is that the story still isn't done. There's one more series to go. He came, he lived, he gave his life for us, and he's coming back. That last play. Whatever is 
eating your lunch this Christmas, whatever is plaguing your heart and mind, whatever it is that's dragging you down, get your eyes off of that and focus on this promise that he has been working on for generations. You see, there's a reason why the angels sang, why the theme was for that night was joy, hope, God didn't pull it out of the fire. This has been his plan all along. What would it be like if you were to view your Christmas this year, your family, your setting, your situation? What if it really was exactly what God was wanted to do? He's got a purpose. Does it bring a sense of rest? Let's pray. I want to give you a moment. I want you to think through if there are things about this season that have been causing you stress. They may be significant. No one wants to diminish that. But when you think about those things and their place in God's bigger plan. The lesson isn't, oh, that the, the things that we're worried about are insignificant. That's not the message. The message is that he has a plan to bring it all to pass. But it's in his timing. If you know Jesus as your Savior today, why not speak to him now? Lord Jesus, None of this was an accident. All of this was crafted for my benefit, for our redemption. Please remind me of that this Christmas season. There is a reason for what's going on. And I'm going to be looking for you. I'm looking for your fingerprints. I'm looking for your spirit's work. I can't wait to see what it is you want to accomplish in my life and the lives of those that I love. Because that's just the way you work. And I am not going to be anxious. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, there is one gift that you must open this year. When Jesus came as a baby, that was the beginning of his plan. It was so that he could live among us and eventually give his life as a ransom on the cross. When Jesus died, he died to make a payment for your sin. Those things that you know separate you from God. He loved you so much that he made the payment. And now he offers eternal life to anyone who would put their faith in him as their savior. The greatest gift you could give anyone, yourself and anyone that you love, is the gift of having an assurance of your eternity. Please don't leave today without putting your faith in Jesus or maybe talking to someone and exploring more. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, even as you came as that baby, you knew the Father's plan.
All of this has been done so that it might be accomplished. And so we acknowledge that this Christmas, our lives are still a part of your plan. Teach us what it means to trust you. Help us to find you, to seek you, to listen for you, and to reflect you to others during this wonderful holiday season. Show us that those problems, those people, those expectations, that you've got those things in control. Thank you for working on these gifts for so long for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Intro music by bensound.com. Visit us online at crossroads-cc.org.